Hello and welcome to the Apologetics 315 podcast with your hosts, Brian Auten and Chad Gross. Join us for conversations and interviews on the topics of apologetics, evangelism, and the Christian worldview. You never studied. Hello, welcome to the Apologetics 315 podcast. I'm Brian Auten. And I'm Chad Gross. And uh, today we have the privilege of uh, interviewing one of our favorite authors, Peter S. Williams. Uh, there's a lot of Peter Williams out there, but this is Peter S. Williams. He's written quite a number of books that uh, I'm just thrilled about. Today we're going to be talking about Outgrowing God, A Beginner's Guide to Richard Dawkins and the God Debate. The other books he's written are A Faithful Guide to Philosophy, An Introduction to the Love of Wisdom, Getting at Jesus, A Comprehensive Critique of Neo-Atheist Nonsense about the Jesus of History, C.S. Lewis and the New Atheists, Understanding Jesus, Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment, and my favorite, A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism. You can find his resources at peterswilliams.com. Chad, what are you looking forward to in today's interview? Well, honestly, one of the things I love about Peter S. Williams is that uh, he, he's very knowledgeable and has a good understanding of the central issues in regard to theology, philosophy, and history, uh, but he's one of those people that can also explain it in a way that is uh, comprehensible to someone who's more of what we might call a layman. And mm -hmm. um, I'm just really looking forward to hearing how he not only addresses Dawkins, but one of the nice things for uh, those who are interested in reading this book is that the subtitle also says it's not only about addressing Dawkins, but it's also about, it's an introduction to the God debate. And it goes mm -hmm. well beyond uh, Dawkins as far as depth. And, uh, and so not only is it a great place to learn how to see where Dawkins is an error, but even I think more importantly than that, it's a great place to see some of the uh, viable arguments for theism. Yeah. It, you know, even if you haven't read that book or if you read some or any of Richard Dawkins stuff, this is, this is just a, a great intro to that material, the, the angle he's coming from, great overview of apologetics because there's a, a wide variety of things that are addressed in the book. And it's done in a real nice discussion style. So you don't feel like you're just getting one author, you know, speaking to you. But I'm really looking forward to this interview. And for those who are listening, uh, you might notice a few audio glitches just in the first half. But I want to assure you those go away. And uh, please stick with us to the end. It's a great interview. It will become smooth like butter. Peter, thanks for joining us for this interview today. How have you been? Uh I've been good, thank you. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Now, I was looking at your um, credentials and whatnot, and you're the assistant professor in communication and worldviews at, how do you say that? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a university college in Norway uh, called NLA University, but it has three different campuses, and my campus is in, at Gimlekollen in Kristiansand in the south coast of Norway. Okay, well, I didn't want to even say that in the intro because <laughs> I was like, "How do I semicolon gimlekolon?" I don't, I don't know how to say yeah. that. It's like sounds like something uh, off the Lord of the Rings or something. Basically, means uh, moose moose hill. Nice. Yeah. So, although I, I I live and I'm I'm based in Southampton in England, um, but I'm yeah I'm a forty percent position uh, with uh, gimlekolon campus of NLA University uh, out in Norway. Um, and when we're allowed to fly, I do occasionally fly out there to do work, and they bring a study tour of, of students over to the UK once a year, usually. Uh, of course, at the moment, we've been doing a lot more of uh, exploring how to use the internet to deliver teaching. So, You know, Chad and I both have read your newest book. Uh, now, first, I, before we get into that, though, my favorite book on the, the new atheism is your Skeptic's Guide to Atheism. I think it's, like, amazing. You represent the atheist side, like broadly and thoroughly on all the things that really matter. And then you just really go to town on it uh, in just a really robust way. I mean, like there's more footnotes <laughs> in your books than, than uh, pages, you know. I do love that. Yeah. So uh, we really uh, found your newest book, uh, Outgrowing God, a Beginner's Guide to Richard Dawkins and the God Debate. Great. I loved it. Didn't make it all the way through uh, outgrowing God by Richard Dawkins. I, I thought, let me just uh, let me just get it from Peter here. Now, I guess the first question would be: Tell us about a little bit about um, Dawkins' newest book, 
you know, why you think, uh, you know, he's writing that with his audience and has he covered any new ground or since the God delusion, you know, it's, it's a number of years since the God delusion. And maybe people are saying, well, what are we going back to Dawkins for here? Can you kind of, uh, elaborate there? Yeah, sure. So it was, um, just last year, I think that Dawkins brought out this uh, latest book of his called Outgrowing God. Um, and it's been called a kind of junior version of the God delusion. And that's kind of right in that he is writing to a slightly younger audience. I'd say he's writing to a sort of you know, older teenage audience, a kind of A-level undergraduate kind of market, um, rather than writing directly for an, an adult uh, audience. But it's certainly by no means uh, a children's book, although he has in the past written uh, a book for children on, on science called The Magic of Reality. So he's he's slightly tweaking the material for for, an, for a new audience. And it's not exactly the same material as in, in The God Delusion or the same sort of ordering of, of things, um, but it's very much the same kind of menu, slightly remixed, uh, as it were. So he's looking at a broad range of issues to do with belief in uh, a god of some kind, uh, particularly, and then looking particularly at um, Judeo-Christian view of God and the Bible. Spends a lot of time talking about um, the the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, before going on to talk in the second half of his book, mainly about um, biological evolution and how he thinks um, Darwinian evolution undermines what he considers to be the best argument for belief in God, which is some kind of design argument from the appearance of design uh, in the world. And he talks a little bit about cosmology and design as well. So he's, he's covering a broad range of topics, uh, talks about uh, morality in what I think of as a rather confused kind of a, a way and a rather confused kind of order in his book. And indeed, in my response I've kind of reordered the topics into what I think is a more sensible order of approaching the topics that he deals with uh, in that book. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's very broad and he's, he's covering some material within his professional expertise within the, the realm of, of biological evolution, but a lot of material outside of his uh, expertise where he's dealing with um, philosophy of religion or um, ancient history, biblical theology, etc. Yeah. One of the things I was thinking of is that, you know, you mentioned the reordering of the content in the, of the book, and I wanted to bring the listener's attention to sort of the way you've written it. It's not the same way as you've written in the past. This is sort of like written from the point of view of uh, like a book study. So you've got various characters in dialogue. I found I found that really cool because, you know, you've got a sort of like an atheistic worldview represented there who's questioning what Dawkins is saying that you've got maybe skeptical person, the Christian view there. So you've got these different characters, mm -hmm. which adds a really great dynamic in, in my mind, because sometimes you read a book and it's just maybe a dry academic response. It's like, okay, this is information piled upon information. And it's only one point of view, but it, you've really kind of uh, made it approachable in that way. I'm glad you said that. I did want to make it an approachable, sort of interesting to read uh, response. And I, I actually really enjoyed writing it in this um, time-honoured philosophical form of, of the dialogue, but by setting it in, a, in a, a student reading group who happened to be reading Dawkins' book, and they're going through, meeting by meeting, going through his chapters, and as you say, then being able to have a Christian character, an agnostic character, and different kinds of atheist characters. So I have one, one student in the book who's very influenced by the new atheism, and another atheist student in the book who thinks uh, that Richard Dawkins gives atheism a bad name and there are more ways to be an atheist than, than following Richard Dawkins, you know, uh, just to uh, not to, to paint all um, atheism with the same brush uh, any more than you can really paint, you know, uh, all Christians or all religious believers with the same brush as well. So a, a diversity of, of viewpoints kind of interacting. Uh, as they go through that material. Um, and I wanted it to be a sort of, to function as an educational, genuinely educational tool in a way that I was sort of shocked that Dawkins's book didn't work. 
Uh, I, I think that the, the fundamental thing that struck me with Dawkins's book is that he starts off with this sort of appeal to the readers to think about their religious beliefs and not just to have blind faith, not just to believe what they were brought up to believe, but to start thinking about it and asking tough questions. Uh, you know, and as a philosopher and a Christian, I think that's all great as long as you're even-handed mm-hmm. with it. But he's basically saying in that first chapter, you know, don't just take things on authority. And then he spends the whole book as an authority figure, just yeah. telling the reader things, often things that are actually wrong, that he just tells them to believe on his authority, where he doesn't give footnotes, doesn't give a bibliography for, uh, and doesn't equip the reader to be able to assess the information that he's, that he's giving them. As well as the student characters in my book, I've got the the uh, the philosophy professor who is running this this book club, who just plays a very neutral role, but who is teaching the students as they go through about logical fallacies, for example. Mm-hmm. And they find Dawkins making a logical fallacy, and the teacher will teach them about that logical fallacy and how it works, and. And then the reader knows about that fallacy and they can apply that knowledge to what I'm saying to see if I fall into the same fallacies or not uh, to anything else that they read. So I'm I'm actually uh, equipping the reader with critical thinking tools in order to help them deal better with the God debate in a way that conspicuously I think Dawkins fails uh, to do in his work. Yeah, I, I agree. And one of the, one of the things I that was uh, I thought that you pointed out that in uh, myself when I read the God Delusion and whenever I listen to Dawkins or read Dawkins, you know, sometimes I have my, I have a hard time putting my finger on what exactly is bugging me. And and one of the characters near the end of the book says that um, the way Dawkins approaches things and outgrowing God actually discourages independent thought. Yeah. And that, that for me, like hit the nail on the head. Like I said, yes, that's what it is. That that's what I couldn't, you know, put my finger on. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious if the characters, um, if it's okay to call them characters yeah. in, in the, in the book, um, are they based on friends, family acquaintances, or were these just created? Uh, no, they were just uh, kind of created. Um, I, I, I use them as an opportunity to plow some of my life experience and some of my interests in life into the book. So the agnostic student happens to be a, a Japanese student. And I, I, you can see from my, my T-shirt, I'm wearing a Godzilla T-shirt. As we, I, I'm, a, I'm a bit obsessed by, by all things Japanese. Uh, and she's studying music. Uh, I, I love music. And I, I studied music for my first year at university. Uh, and she and our Christian character, who's a, a Norwegian student called Astrid, um, they bond a bit over their mutual love of prog rock music. I love prog rock music, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's things reflected in the different characters um, that, I, that I like. Thomas, who's the kind of new atheist skeptical student, he's studying classics. I studied classics at, at A-level. But that allows him to quote some of the ancient Greek writings that are relevant to the things that are being talked about in, in the book. Um, so he brings that classics background. Uh, my more sort of traditional atheist uh, student um, is studying philosophy and, and, and comes from uh, an atheism that's much more in line with, with folks like um, Thomas Nagel or uh, Michael Roos or um, Bradley, Mon- uh, Bradley Monton. Or... He's representing a different kind of, of atheism. Um, and the one thing that I was also particularly keen to do, sorry if I'm rambling, but I, when you get to the end of the book, if you've seen um, that that um, apologetics film, Christian film, God's Not Dead, I've seen the first one, but not any of the any of the sequels. And you know, great, the, the student in that film gets an opportunity to give some arguments for God in in his lecture discussions. And at the end of the at the end of the film, you know, he all all of his previously skeptical classmates are now convinced that there is a God. They all kind of stand up, like completely unrealistic, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, I, I wanted that the, the, the students would not all uh, change their minds at the end of the book. 
And although there's movement in some of the opinions of some of the characters, you know, uh, actually, by the end of the book, no one has actually become a Christian who wasn't beforehand, right? Um, so, <laughs> yeah, they're, 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 they're representing um, their positions pretty, pretty consistently through the book, although it's fair to say one of the characters uh, moves closer to Christianity than, than um, they were previously uh, by, a, by quite a big degree. And um, I leave it to the reader's imagination as to where the story will go. But yeah, bringing a bit of soap opera into the, the characters uh, as well. And so one of the things you mentioned there um, was about uh, how Richard Dawkins represents, you know, one type of atheism. Yeah. And then there there is a more, I would argue anyway, um, academically sophisticated mm -hmm. brand of atheism, such as um, I'm thinking of people like uh, Graham Oppie or J.L. Mackey, people right. like that. Yeah. Some of the people you name. Yeah. So some of my atheists some of my atheist friends particularly on twitter one of the criticisms they'll bring toward apologists when they address the work of dawkins is they'll say something like this and i want to represent them fairly but they'll say something like why are you guys addressing dawkins mm. why not address the best atheism has to offer and brian and i've talked about this on the podcast before but i'd love to hear your thoughts on that yeah, well, I think that's right. I think the best atheism has to offer does need addressing, um, but so do voices that have popular reach. So um, the Graham Oppies, the um, Eric Vreulenbergs of the world um, are much better um, thinkers than Dawkins, I would say, and they need answering. Um, but their reach is primarily in the academic journals and uh, academic. Um, publishing, uh, whereas um, Dawkins and his fellow new atheists are having an effect uh, on the culture at large. Uh, they get the the media play time, and so their views are the views that are uh, impacting a broad swath of people. And those views also need uh, answering. But I would say, for example, in this in my response book, at least I'm answering it in a way that points out that there are more academically respectable atheist thinkers than Dawkins, and there are atheists. There are atheists who have themselves criticised Dawkins's approach to, say, dealing with issues in the philosophy of religion. And, and I and I quote some of those have the the the, 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 the sort of traditional atheist character in that book saying, you know, here's what Eric Weilenberg makes of Richard Dawkins' central argument against God. And I quote from an academic article that Weilenberg wrote criticising Dawkins, right? Thanks. Yeah, that's one of the, I'm, I'm glad you brought that point out because that was one thing that I, I noticed right away is is that you were um, through interacting with Dawkins's work. It, it was it was almost as if you indirectly um, and I thought very uh, kindly, you know, ra almost raised the bar as if to say, look, you know, this this is this is not the best argumentation that that atheism has to deal with here. You know, there there are better arguments out there. And then, of course, through these characters interacting, I thought you did a great job of bringing those arguments out. Hmm. And so I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's a great point. If I can throw in a question in there, you know, we're talking about Dawkins, uh, maybe not being best representation of uh, robust thinking atheism. The question would be sort of like if you were sitting down with, with Dawkins yourself, what sort of things would you want to sort of challenge him on that you think are the major sort of columns of maybe the ways he's kind of, hey, Richard, <laughs> you need to you need to polish up these three categories. You know, you, you can do a little bit better here. What would what would be those three main or say two or three things that you think that are the main things that he doesn't fall into a better better category you know better category of atheist thinker you know yeah 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 where, where, where would we start um uh, take some introduction you know read some introduction to philosophy of religion uh, books do research uh, beyond uh, the internet and the internet's great I, I quote from internet sites uh, uh, and so on but um you need to cast your net a little wider than that. I think I would, <laughs> I would start maybe with uh, with theory of knowledge because many uh, at the foundation of a lot of the new atheism is uh, a narrow theory of knowledge um, that is scientific to some degree or other, and 
I think it, it, it's this that means that they don't take uh, metaphysical arguments seriously and don't therefore fail to really engage rigorously with metaphysical arguments because they're not scientific arguments, right? And they, and they have this view that, that, that science is, is the, the real way to know things, whereas I think it's, it's a good way to know a certain kind of thing. Um, uh, but that, that the foundations of our knowing of things are actually philosophical, metaphysical uh, issues. Um, so I, I, I will want to push the importance of looking at that, the foundation of our knowledge of the world in, in philosophical, metaphysical issues, um, and to perhaps dis to discuss that, that sort of scientism versus a broader view of how we know things about the world issue and i'd certainly want to as i as i p pull him up on try and try and pull him up on and the the number of self-contradictions in his worldview um contradictions that i point out in works like c.s lewis versus the new atheists and and in this book where um he he kind of tries to have his cake and eat it, really. It's kind of, on the one hand, in some places, Dawkins will say things that give the impression that he thinks that, you know, there is no such thing as objective value, like good or evil in the world. You know, he says there's no good or evil. He says good and evil normative terms have no meaning. He's kind of um, harking back to sort of logical positivist views of, of value, right? So say, you know, normative terms about good and evil have no meaning. Uh, and, and then in the next chapter, he'll, he'll talk about how religious people do evil things and, and faith is evil because it, it, it yeah. stops you living up to your intellectual responsibilities that you ought to live up to and, and so on. And it's like, well, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can, have, you can consistently make one of these criticisms, but you can't consistently make both of them. <laughs> so pick which one you're going to keep by all means but but keeping uh, trying to keep both of them just doesn't work yeah that was one of the the struggles i that's one of the struggles i've always had with with dawkins is that inconsistency that you bring out there and the fact that you know on one hand there there is no good there is no evil you know at the bottom i'm not quoting this verbatim but it, mm -hmm. you know that's just blind pitiless indifference yeah. but then he has he has no problem in the next breath you know uh denouncing the behavior of yahweh or jesus of nazareth or modern christian believers mm -hmm. and um I, I mean do you and again, if I'm asking to speculate here, that's fair. Um, and, and, you know, you don't have to. But I'm curious is do you think that's just that lack of philosophical training that he hasn't been, he's not able to reflect and, and see that? Or, or what do you think? Uh, as you say, that's a very speculative uh, question. One would hope that someone uh, who um, got a, a foundation in philosophical thinking would, would notice that kind of self-contradiction because it does seem a very blatant self-contradiction and he does seem to repeatedly fall into stand, you know, standard philosophical kind of failures of argumentation. So to, to make arguments that are begging the question or to put forward viewpoints that are self-contradictory. And one would hope that a, a philosophical education equips one to at least Try and avoid doing that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but as to you know, it, questions about what what is his inner motivations or psychology or I, I'm not a psychologist or sociologist or I, I can just say he 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 does repeatedly make make these mistakes and people repeatedly point them out in the responses to Dawkins's work and he appears to continue making the same mistaken arguments. Right. We were talking uh, on a previous podcast about these slogans, so to speak. And um, for example, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And uh, my sort of shoot from the hip take on some of the my impressions, so to speak, from reading Dawkins' latest book was that it's kind of like, you know, you just cast the net into atheist Reddit and pull out all the memes and and then patch them together into a book or something. You know, I just felt uh, disappointed. I hope for more, you know, I'm like, yeah, okay, this is a, uh, a popular author, respected thinker in, in some ways. So, you know, where's the beef? <laughs> but um, yeah. 
I, one of the things that Chad and I had been speaking to is things like slogans, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Uh, Dawkins in the book talks about Jesus rising from the dead is an extraordinary claim. You know, the evidence better be good. What do you think are the problems with that sort of claim? And, you know, where do, where do you think that someone errs in requiring extraordinary evidence? Yeah, I think it often does just function at a sort of aphoristic level as a slogan and to make it actually meaningful within the, the context of a, of a discussion of those kind of issues you need to make it much more precise what you actually mean so what qualifies something as being quote-unquote extraordinary evidence you know is there a difference between evidence being good enough to convince you in the circumstances of the the background beliefs plus the particular evidence and uh, and so on does anything distinguish that from extraordinary evidence so if you actually try and cash out carefully what kind of of data evidence is there how do we make uh, inferences from data to conclusions how do our background beliefs affect how we're doing that etc and, and you actually go through step by step carefully defining everything and then say okay so let's take the resurrection of jesus what's the relevant data that we can establish using what kind of historical critical rules uh, what kind of rules of explanation do we have whereby we tell whether one explanation is or is not better than another um, how is this process being affected by our background beliefs which hypothesis as to what happened at easter 2000 years ago seems to be the best one on those criteria the kind of stuff that I do very carefully over multiple chapters in um, a book of mine like um, Getting at Jesus, then I think when you when you do that, if you approach uh, the issue uh, without, at least without a, a sort of um, hardline commitment to atheism, uh, then you, think, you see that the resurrection hypothesis is a very strong hypothesis and outcompetes other hypotheses that one might want to chuck into the process. Really, all of that tough, step-by-step, -step, careful, definitional, philosophical, come historical work is bypassed by what, I, I think it was Tim McGrew who, who, who gave a lecture on this, basically saying that the you know, extraordinary claims argument re really often in practice just boils down to, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Uh, I'm not really going to define what an extraordinary claim or extraordinary evidence are, but I'm going to call your claim extraordinary and whatever evidence you give me uh, gives me, I know a priori isn't going to meet my standard, therefore I win. Well, you know, that's just avoiding dealing with the issues <laughs> rather than, than, than carefully dealing with the issues. And to do that, you need to ping things down in terms of careful definitions and go step by step through the arguments. And there's no avoiding, no avoiding doing that. Mm. That's helpful. Yeah, I was Brian and I when we talked about one of the things that I've noticed in actual conversations with uh, skeptics is that when they, you know, throw that kind of common uh, slogan out, is one of the things I'll I'll ask back is say, well, can you can you explain to me what you mean by extraordinary evidence? Right. Like what would what would the evidence be? And and it's it just struck me over time as I've done that that it, it's a very subjective claim. You know, because what is extraordinary to one person may not be right. extraordinary to, to the next and, and vice versa. Yeah. You know, so, you know, it's a kind of two could play at that game, if, if you like. You know, if, if, the, if the naturalist materialist wants to claim that, you know, human minds are just brains uh, and that there is no uh, soul or spirit above and beyond the body. Well, that's an extraordinary claim. Um, what's, what's your extraordinary evidence for that, for that claim? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, but that's just like um, <laughs> meeting foolishness with foolishness. Well, we don't, we won't want, we don't want to get into that game. Let, let's just say, okay, you want to make that claim. You've got this hypothesis. I've got a different one. Um, what are the ground rules of how we might sort out whether an argument for one or other of those views is a good one or not? Logically valid arguments work. We need to know how we're establishing. You know what our starting points for arguments are. We need to know what our epistemology is. We need to delve into all of those issues and find out well, where is it that our, that our disagreement comes. Is, it, is are we disagreeing because you've got a scientific theory of knowledge and I'm I'm starting with a broader theory of knowledge? Is that what we need to talk about, or do we do we both agree about how we know things and we're disagreeing about what the relevant data is, or we need to work through the arguments until we track down where the disagreement is and see if there's anything that we can 
we can lever, rationally speaking, that would change each other's minds in the process. But just sort of wielding these slogans doesn't really help us uh, advance our understanding of each other or the, or the issues, particularly, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's one of the things that really comes out in the in the book when you, you as you mentioned, these different characters that have these different views. Uh, one of the things I love about it is, is it's a great model of how a discussion can look between people who mm. disagree on incredibly important issues, but strive to represent each other fairly to hear the other person. And they might not at the end of the day agree, yeah. but they're at least they're at least willing to hear the other individual. And so yeah. um, I think listeners, you know, uh, will appreciate that when they read the book, mm -hmm. that they'll see that, you know, hey, discussions like this are possible because <laughs> sometimes, yeah. especially on the Internet, it, it gets a little rough. Yeah. yeah. I think um, Craig Blomberg, in his um, endorsement review of, of, of the book, kind of called it a sort of a, a, a teacher's a paradise or something like that, a pedagogist's paradise, where all the students are like, they disagree agreeably and, and care for each other. <laughs> and like, you know, everything's uh, wonderful in the garden. But um, yeah, uh, it, it, it is a, a sort of idealized world, but it is uh, at least putting forward an ideal, which we, which I think we, we all ought to, to strive for. Another way that I see the, the book being used is, you know, you mentioned that it's, as an author, Richard Dawkins has sort of a popular reach. At the, in the same time, his arguments might be rightly said to be like just popular uh, street level things you're going to hear. So in a way... It's just a, a great way to get exposed to a whole variety of common arguments, whether they're good or bad, um, yeah. and just systematically look at them in the best way possible and really turn them over and analyze them. Yeah, I mean, that's why I wanted to, that, that subtitle on the book, I, you know, Our Growing God question marks, and it's clearly linked to Dawkins's new book, but I've called it, you know, A Beginner's Guide to Richard Dawkins and the God Debate. Yeah. So it's not just a, a book for people who want to know what's the, what's the response from a Christian to what yeah. Richard Dawkins says in this book, but that it does genuinely, as I say, act as, as a sort of introduction and educational tool to equip people to uh, engage with the God debate in, in culture in, in, a, in a more equipped and serious way. Yeah, it's great for that. I don't know, maybe, Chad, you have some things you wanted to pull out because you were, you were mentioning, you know, some of the different topics you, you really liked seeing in there. Yeah, I just, I was really, uh, you know, picking up the book and, and looking at reading the description and reading a bit about it. I wasn't exactly sure what to expect when it was a dialogue. I was really impressed with the, the, the width and, and depth of topics that you were willing to address, you were able, excuse me, to address, and not only address, but you address them with some of the best that Christian scholarship has to offer. I mean, there were there were things in there that I just thought, oh my gosh, this is this would be great to give to my atheist friend who isn't even necessarily like a Dawkins guy. But mm -hmm. even if you're not a Dawkins guy, you can read this book and really get the best of both worlds as far as the God debate goes. And I, I mm -hmm. think it just serves as a really good um, and I, I may have said this already, but it just serves as a really good example of of how we as Christians should represent the other side, mm -hmm. but then also how we should represent our own side. Um, and, and one of the things, too, I thought was, for example, uh, one of the one of the things that's really hard to stomach for me with with Dawkins is how he deals with the Bible, um, and I know I'm not alone there. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the uh, things that he uh, says there in the book is, you bring out the idea that there you know there are two ways scholars generally approach the Old Testament, and of course you can elaborate on this. I'm just going to kind of, but there's the minimalist view, mm -hmm. uh, those who believe the Old Testament has you know basically little or no historical value. And then there's the maximalist view. And, and these people, as you explained, fall on kind of a continuum of optimism mm. about the biblical text as a historical source. And anyone familiar with Dawkins's work isn't real surprised to hear that he subscribes to the minimalist school of thinking. Yeah. But I thought that I thought that you did a great job in, in outgrowing God, offering some compelling reasons why the maximalist approach, mm. you know, falling somewhere on that maximalist continuum it is a more is more consistent with kind of the totality, 
totality of the evidence. And so mm. could you kind of like introduce listeners to like, you know, one, two, maybe three of those reasons that maybe they should take the Old Testament a little bit more seriously than say someone like Dawkins does? Yeah, sure. So the, the, this minimalist school, their approach to Old Testament history is generally to say something along the lines of that the, the older sort of parts of the Old Testament story, historically speaking, if you like, were written much later than um, people have traditionally thought, that, that, that um, the early parts of the Old Testament were, were written by the Jews during the time of the Babylonian exile or later, right, uh, as a way of sort of giving themselves a national story and a community cohesiveness under the pressure of exile in Babylon. So Dawkins happily accepts that the the Babylonian exile material is is you know at least broadly speaking historical, but will think that material about the United Kingdom, Solomon, King David, going back to Abraham, etc. That that's all sort of made up hundreds and hundreds of years later. But we repeatedly find those texts about those ancient Old Testament characters getting incidental historical details uh, of the culture correct and this in a, in a way that um, you know Jews in exile in Babylon wouldn't have been able to uh, look up the correct historical details in the archaeological database on Wikipedia you know uh, archaeology wasn't a subject back then and um, gosh they didn't have Wikipedia but but uh, nonetheless, they somehow managed to get the changing price of slaves correct over history, or to know what kind of uh, wood is available uh, in Egypt, e- even though it doesn't exist in, in in Palestine, or they know about the um, Egyptian farming um, calendar, or all, all sorts of incidental uh, details, uh, and often things that uh, Dawkins actually gets wrong, just flat out wrong as well. So he uh, he says, for example, about King David, he's you know probably uh, made up figure, and and if he did exist, even if he did exist, he's probably just a sort of little lo- local chieftain kind of thing. And and I introduce just some of the, the you know, standard archaeology <laughs> of the period. Yeah. So the, the Tel Dan stele, which records about the house of David. Uh, for example, which was discovered in in the mid nineties, and you know settled uh, the discussion about was there a, a, a David, House of David, and so on, and look at some of the more recent archaeology that that just seems to keep um, dribbling in uh, about there being uh, an organised large scale state during the the United Monarch so called United Monarchy period, looking at the uh, at um, various archaeologies from a range of archaeologists with different worldviews as well, so Jewish archaeologists as well as Christian archaeologists and just quoting sort of standard uh, sources. So there's there's a debate in the field, uh, certainly, but I think the evidence continues to come in against this minimalist kind of, it, it was all made up later uh, view, uh, and for at least thinking that they had access to. You just have to say they had access to information that went that, that accurately was transmitted over a long period from the, the the times and places that they're talking about, or that the material was written earlier than the minimalists think. And, and either way, that the the uh, the the older Old Testament stories, if you like, d- demonstrably, I think, at least have uh, roots in historical memory. That doesn't prove all the details of all the stories but i think it puts you uh, i think the evidence puts you comfortably somewhere on the maximalist scale rather than on the, the minimalist side of the scale yeah yeah i liked how you i had never heard that um described that way that um uh kind of on that scale um and, and i thought that was really helpful because you know, sometimes people in the Christian circles will dismiss other people if they don't meet this list of criteria on the maximalist, right. uh, you know, a- end of things. And so I thought that for me personally was really helpful. And then also I wanted to, I'm trying to find it right now, actually, mm. but um, I know that you wrote a, um, 
ebook because I featured it on Truth Bomb called Digging for Evidence. Yeah. It's on ChristianEvidence.org. Christian Evidence. That... Or you can also uh, click it through from my um, book section of my website. That's oh, okay. Easy. It's on there right. too. So um, I was really happy to see you address the topic of uh, slavery um, in the Bible, particularly. Um, I find this just an ongoing challenge presented to uh, the Christian theist. Uh, I, I know questions like, why does, why does the Bible advocate slavery, which I know is assuming it does, and why didn't God abolish slavery? Uh, popular YouTube atheists such as you know, Matt Dillahunty or, of course, like Dawkins, they continue to use this argument. I, I was really uh, pleased, and I, I found it personally really helpful to see how you demonstrated that the slavery in the Old Testament was quite different from what most modern folks imagine when they hear the word uh, slavery. Could you unpack that a little bit for our listeners about kind of that difference between Old Testament slavery versus what we imagine as slavery? Yeah, sure. So when we here, read slavery, we tend to think in, in terms of uh, the slave trade that got abolished in the 19th century, of the, the slave triangle between you know, England and Africa and America and the plantations and uh, uh, slavery that in, uh, of that ilk. Whereas in the ancient world, and in particularly looking at ancient Israel, or the the I mean, even translating it as slavery is somewhat controversial among the scholars when you when you read this, because um, at least for um, Israelite slaves, it is perhaps better to call it some kind of of mutually agreed bond, bonded period of service. Hmm. Uh, it sort of acted as the welfare safety net of the age, where. If you got you know in debt or couldn't feed yourself or you sold your your service for a period to a family whom you would then live with, who would feed and clothe and house house you and you would you would labor for them for a set period of time was the deal, and uh, you were not treated as a, a thing but as a, a person who did have rights. Uh, and you had protections in, in the, the Jewish law of those rights so that slave owners couldn't just treat slaves goes, uh, however they liked. And certainly if you can, comparing the kind of view of slaves in Israel versus other societies around them at the time, the, the, uh, the rules, the, 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 the legal view of slaves was a higher one in Israel than in surrounding cultures. So, uh, for example, in the in the Jewish law, uh, kidnapping people to make, turn them into slaves was illegal, uh, and people uh, slaves who ran away uh, could seek sanctuary in in Israel. Whereas in other cultures, it was a duty to return runaway slaves to where they had come from. Right. So that, that actually Israel kind of uh, acted to protect people uh, in those situations. So that's some of the ways in, in which, you know, there, there's, there's, a, there's a difference that kind of gets a little bit obscured by using the, just the same word that we, we immediately associate with sort of antebellum slavery and that the, the historical picture is, is really more uh, complex than that. Yes. Yeah. And, and uh, just an encouragement to listeners, if, if you want a really good, concise treatment of Old Testament and New Testament, uh, you know, just for the sake of the word, since we're talking about it, slavery, um, th this is a really great resource for that. So I'd highly recommend it. I, I mean, also, I also think perhaps it, 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 it's worth sort of saying about endorsing this difference between looking at, at the the sort of agenda that's set out in Genesis about human rights and dignity, that is a very high bar, and that bar is not always kept to <laughs> throughout the rest of uh, the Bible and, 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 and the cultures there, including, I think, Israelite culture. Mm. But the, the general tenor of the biblical worldview and the fact that Israel had been redeemed out of Egypt by God from slavery tended to have this sort of anti 
slavery bent. But I think the cultural conditions at the, at the time also meant that, as I, as I say, the, the sort of, they, they don't have a, the social security, we're trying to kind of think of, of a very different society mm-hmm. in, in, in very different cultural conditions than we're used to thinking in, in, in terms of. But I, I think the there's a sort of an ideal at the beginning and a recapturing of that ideal uh, as time goes on mm. uh, within the Bible. Mm. And so, I, I mean, you talked a little bit about, about New, New Testament slavery, and again, people look look at passages in the New Testament where, you know, for example, Paul is talking about Christian slaves, um, you know, being being nice and serving their masters and so on. And, you know, why wasn't Paul calling upon all the Christians to kind of rebel against slavery when it's clearly so you know, anti-people's human rights uh, and so on? Well, you know, rebelling against slavery in the Roman Empire is a pretty short path to getting a lot of people killed, right. for one. But also... Paul did, for example, encourage Christians to have the opportunity to get out of slavery, to get freedom, to take it. Mm-hmm. He, he did preach moral messages, which I think unfurled against the grain of a slave culture. Mm-hmm. And the early church, in early church history, certainly have good examples of working against that slavery culture from, from the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. That they inherited, and, and churches, you know, clubbing together to get money to buy people out of slavery, and so on. But it's it is quite tough for us to think ourselves back into the cultural situation of those different societies, and to sort of understand the cultural context that these things are, are happening in uh, as well is is important. Yeah, yeah, that brings to mind for me John Mark Reynolds, the philosopher. Uh, he wrote a book with Philip Johnson. I think it was called Against All Gods, and it's kind of a shorter response to the new atheism. And uh, one of the points that Reynolds brings out there that I found helpful was that, and it's consistent with what you're saying, is that God puts things into place where we can develop morally, but he also wants us to have a hand in it so that we can have some ownership over it instead of him just, you know, laying down like, okay, this is over and now this starts. And so does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think it is a it is a tough issue. I mean, we, people sometimes make this analogy with uh, you know Jesus is teaching about divorce when he he points back to uh, the Genesis account and sort of you know God in, intended marriage to be you know a, a commitment for life, right? And but Moses in the law uh, uh, permitted you to divorce mm. each other, but it, it, this is not God's ideal. But the practice of divorce is going to go on, and there there are there are things in the law that, if if you like, in a sense, put in protections for for the women who are being divorced and that that manage that situation. And whether that is an analogy that you can apply to the issue of slavery, but again, as you say, you you could say, well, why didn't God just say, okay, as well, you're not allowed to have any slaves, right? Um, would that work in the culture? Um, would people have gone along with it or not? Would they have rebelled from that? Would it have been practicable in the cultural situation of, of the day? Perhaps it's easier for us to think that maybe we know the answer to those kind of questions. And actually, it's maybe quite hard to know hmm. the answer to those kind of count, count, counterfactual questions. Yeah. 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 As we're kind of like talking about the slavery issue and. You know, in the book, in Dawkins' book, he kind of obviously uses that as a uh, moral judgment against the Bible. But there's quite a good section in the book talking about moral values, about how we ground morality. Can you talk a bit about, and I don't know if this is how the original book was structured, Dawkins' book was structured, but you sort of address it in a different order. Is is that related to how he brings up moral objections and uh, right. how does that work out? Dawkins brings up various incidents within the, the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament, where he wants readers to judge the character of Yahweh, whether you believe Yahweh exists or not, but as a character in the story of the Old Testament, to judge him to be a, a moral failure, to be a bad character. 
Right. But he does this before, in the book, he introduces his discussion about the topic of good and evil and how we make moral decision, moral judgments about things. But that felt like the wrong order, and partly because of this issue that actually we know, and particularly from, from other things that Dawkins has written, that he doesn't think that there is an objective moral order. Right. <laughs> uh, and so there's a sort of a contradiction involved in 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 him saying, you know, on the one hand, uh, as we've talked about, there's there's no good and evil. On the other hand, saying God's an evil character, right? You can't kind of hold both of those things at at, at the same time consistently. But you know, he's just trying to get people to make. You know, what do you think about God? And, may, and maybe the reader thinks that there really are, as one of my characters, Thomas the new atheist character says, you know, I really want to actually objectively say, you know, this this God character is doing stuff that he shouldn't do, that, that that's bad, it's evil. I want to condemn things that are in the Bible that I think are immoral, whilst realizing that that means he has to admit that there is an objective moral order, yeah. and realizing that that means he has to grapple with the metaphysical issue of, well, what kind of worldview makes the best sense of the existence of such an objective moral order? And that gets you into the moral argument for at least some kind of theism, mm. right? Now, Dawkins can avoid getting into that that moral argument for theism by saying, well, I don't think there, there is an objective moral order that needs explaining, but that leaves him high and dry in, in terms of wanting to say anything about Yahweh or people in the Bible or Christians today doing anything that is, objectively speaking, morally wrong. <laughs> And that's why you know I have one atheist, one atheist character who wants to say things are wrong, and these things in the Bible are wrong, and another atheist character who wants to say, I, I see the the difficulty that's lead, leading to here, philosophically speaking, and so I am a moral subjectivist, and I don't think there is anything objectively right or wrong. Yeah. But I but I see that that means that I you know I can't make any objective moral criticisms of any anybody anywhere, including in the Bible. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I thought that that um, that wrestling was was brought out really well in the book and how he was, you know, kind of straddling the line of, oh, I want to I want to say this, but it, but to be consistent, I really can't. So I've, I've got to stay over here on the subjectivist line. Um, I thought that yeah. that was really that was really interesting how how that was brought out. Um, what what do you think about? So I'm thinking here of non-believers attempts, uh, say, uh, Sam Harris, uh, the moral landscape. Perhaps a oh. perhaps a less impressive attempt. Um, Wheelen, Eric Wielenberg, you know, his, he had a debate with uh, William Lane Craig, robust ethics. Do you think it's? Do you think there's any hope in grounding objective moral truths in anything other than God? And if not, why not? Right. So I think I think the best attempt would be some kind of moral Platonism mm. that says there there is an objective kind of standard of goodness but i think that view still at least has has great problems with with moral duties and and obligations and this kind of prescriptive nature of morality in our experience so how do you i mean there are various lines of argument within under the umbrella of the moral argument and if you focus on the kind of the, the how can something be right or wrong, something that we should or shouldn't do, that seems to be something that is prescribed, that we are obligated that, uh, to do, then that seems to be something that makes at least the best sense within a, within a personal context of someone who is prescribing and someone who can who has the moral authority to rightfully expect your obedience to to rightly be able to obligate your behavior in a way that a, that an impersonal non-personal reality just just doesn't seem to make any sense to say you know I am obligated to behave in way X by the evolutionary history of my species <laughs> three million years ago or um, you know, I am obligated by the atoms that make up the world to behave in way Y. We need some sort of personal foundation to make those concepts make sense. But because we're also talking about, if we're talking about objectively existent moral realm, something that transcends what you or I or our society thinks or chooses or decides or feels about the matter such that we can make genuine moral mistakes 
that we can be wrong in our moral opinions. This is why we spend so much time and effort trying to find out what's the, the correct answer to certain moral questions. Yeah. You know, how should I behave in this situation? Seems to be something that, that matters and we put a lot of effort into trying to find out the answer to. There's this transcendent nature to these moral prescriptions and obligations that we're trying to dis- discover. They're not things we invent. Therefore, we, we need, we're sort of pushed towards rooting this moral realm in a transcendent mm. personal reality. So that's a sort of a, a, a one side of the moral argument, I think. The, the other side would be, would be about, you know, can there be this realm of, uh, of moral ideals in a, you know, a naturalistic, materialistic universe? If there's an ideal, there has to be some sort of idea and, and maybe some kind of platonic, there is the form of the good whatever, can there be an idea that's not an idea in a mind of someone? Mm. Put the views together, but, but maybe you, you, you can go that route. But, but how do you explain the, the sort of prescriptive, the obligatory, the, you know, or, or another line of argument is, is, does it make sense for us to feel, to feel guilt or to feel shame before this source of moral obligation and prescription? Not you know, I, I do something and I feel feel guilt feel guilty before before that moral reality, even though no one else knows about what's happened. You know, I can feel guilty before personal realities again, but but not before impersonal realities. If there's more to the situation than just feeling guilty before my my own judgment, but then if you know, it's not just me making making it the case that something's right or wrong, that would be inventing. I, I, I'm, <laughs> yeah. If we're talking discovering again, then we're, we're talking about some sort of objective realm. So there's there's a number of, of lines that cumulatively together, I think, point towards a, the need to bring in some sort of transcendent personal reality to the moral realm in order to best explain it. One of the fascinating things for me regarding the moral argument is, you know, Dr. Craig and, and of course, people, philosophers like you bring out this idea of our moral intuitions, you know, um, or, or what one might say, we, what we can't not know, you know, and, um, in Dawkins's first debate with John Lennox, I'll, I'll never forget. They were discussing objective moral truths. And there was this moment in the debate when Dawkins was trying to grapple you could see with these moral truths that impress themselves upon us. And he said, there just seems to be something in the air, you know, like there's something out there. And I remember I was doing a Sunday school class and I told my Sunday school class, I said, that's Richard Dawkins struggling to explain objective moral truth. Yeah. There's something in the air, you know, what's the best explanation of this something that we all experience. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I think you, you either end up having to explain it away, explain it away, and say actually that's a, that's a, some kind of delusion. Yeah, uh, and there isn't really, as there as there does appear to be, these these objective moral values. So you have to have some some kind of error, kind of conspiracy, explain it away theory, and the burden of proof is on that error theory. Because it's saying, I know it seems like this is true, but here's why you should think nonetheless yeah. that's not. Whereas, on the other hand, if, if you do follow the way it seems, it seems that reality is, then the best explanation for that reality being the way that it does seem to be would certainly seem to be a theistic one. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, really struck me uh, in reading uh, the book was how you chose Astrid, who for listeners is the Christian character um, in the book. And you you have as part of her story arc, if you will, uh, that she struggles with depression and Hmm. um, depression since my adult uh, young adult life is something I've battled off and on. And uh, I was just wondering, was that, what was the thinking behind allowing the, which I found it very refreshing, but I was curious as to what the thinking was behind choosing the Christian 
character to be the one struggling with depression because so often we see Christians portrayed in that kind of God's not dead kind of way where everything is rosy yeah. and peachy. And um, does that question make right. sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's basically why I wanted to do that, because I wanted to undermine that um, popular caricature. Yeah. And to to give her a sense of, that was my way of giving that character a sense of reality and a sense of relatability, uh, I, I think. It gave um, something for the for the other characters to sort of understand her as a person mm-hmm. through uh, as well. And was also an, another way of drawing on my personal experience into the, the characters of the book because I, I suffered with depression when I was at, at the end of my undergraduate um, degree mm-hmm. as well. So that's something, you know, I, I've been there. Yeah. Uh, and for different reasons, but Astrid is there. Uh, but that was yet another sort of bringing personal experience to try and make these characters in the book sort of slightly rounded characters rather than just philosophical dialogue caricatures representing certain positions yes. to make the book uh, more interesting. But yeah, I, I didn't want everything to be sort of Astrid to be this this sort of character who was on top of everything. <laughs> was everything easy and would be just this sort of uh, this sort of halo shining around her kind of everything's you know, wonderful for her um, the, the fact that you know uh, well, she, she she does well you know because she's representing the position she, she does well at representing the Christian position in her dialogue with her friends but uh, but some days she doesn't manage to get out of bed and she doesn't make it to the meeting because she's yeah. just feeling too depressed um, <laughs> and and that's real that's real life and i didn't want christians reading the book to kind of be overly awed by the the christian character and kind of kind of think you know i i've got to have everything together yeah in life in, in order to be a, a good ambassador for christ yeah amen <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, I sent, I found it super helpful. And it, I, I think that you with what you set out to do with the characters, you succeeded because when as you know, halfway through the book, I didn't expect to begin to actually care about the characters because I was focused more on the content, you know, the, the more the conversation. But by the end, I actually found myself thinking like, oh, what's going to happen to Astrid? What's going to happen to Thomas? You know? Yeah. 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 So um I was really happy with that. And and just as a, a kind of funny note, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, movie series, How to Train Your Dragon, but um, yeah. my daughter is a huge fan and she's only 12. And I told her, I said, you know, the Christian character in the book I'm reading right now is named Astrid. And that's one of the key characters in the series. Oh, man. Yeah. So I'm sure as soon as she's ready, she'll, she'll be reading Outgrowing God because <laughs> she wants to read all about Astrid. <laughs> well, very good. Uh, Peter, we want to just really thank you for uh, taking the time to do the interview. Yes. Thanks for writing the book. There's a great resource page for the Outgrowing God question mark book uh, with a lot of different list of recommendations for reading and things like that. Could you just talk a bit about that and point people to your other resources as well? Yeah, sure. So my, my website is peterswilliams.com, S for my middle name, which is Stephen. So peterswilliams.com. And if you go there through uh, uh, publications to books, you'll find a, a, a grid with uh, covers of all my books and just click on uh, the Outgrowing God one to take you to the page for that book. And I so say there's lots of resources there. Um, not just um, extended uh, chapter by chapter, sort of meeting by meeting resources as you go through the book, but various podcasts and uh, YouTube playlists, YouTube videos that relate to the book, even um, ambient coffee shop background sounds that you can play whilst reading it if you like. <laughs> so the students meet in the coffee shop. There's a music playlist, a YouTube music playlist called Hiromi's Playlist for uh, music from various artists that are mentioned in the book and so on. So there's a lot of different apologetical, uh, but also uh, cultural things relating to the book that spin off uh, from um, the book's page on my website. Well, very good. We'll point people to those resources on the podcast uh, page, as well as in the show notes. So thanks again for joining us. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much, guys. 
Okay, so that was our interview with uh, Peter S. Williams. I, I know the thing that I liked the, the most about reading the book was how he developed characters in it. I mean, how often in a, in a really rigorous academic apologetics book do you have, you know, dialogues and, and things like that? It was, it was quite helpful, kind of entertaining, kept the interest, kept me from being like, oh, this is just information pouring into my brain. It kind of broke it up well. And it was able to present a lot of different points of view and looking at Dawkins, you know, seeing it from various angles. So that was helpful. Does anything pop out for you what you enjoyed the most? Yeah, honestly, um, I am a uh, confessed uh, Peter S. Williams fan. I, I love his work. And so it's difficult to um, I really got a lot out of much of what he said. But one of the things that sticks out to me is how when we discussed uh, particularly Old Testament slavery, and uh, it, it was it was interesting to listen to him answer that and watch him because you could tell that it was an issue that he still, I think, had, had, you know, he admittedly said, you know, this is a really tough issue. And you could tell that he wasn't trying to give any trite kind of short, quippy kind of answer. And uh, I think that's just a great example of his work overall, is that he is someone who looks at the issues from several different angles and tries to um, represent uh, his position uh, modestly and uh, thoughtfully. And so that really stuck out to me from the interview, uh, just seeing someone of his stature admittedly uh, struggling with an issue that's tough and, and being honest and saying, yeah, it's a tough issue. I think that's a good example for all of us. Yeah, very enjoyable interview. A lot of good information there. I want to encourage uh, the listeners to pick up his book, Outgrowing God? Question mark with a great subtitle. You know, in introduction to the God debate. So, um, if you want to find more resources about uh, today's interview and anything else by Peter S. Williams, check out the show notes for today's podcast on Apologetics315.com. Also, check out Chad Gross's website there at Truth Bomb Apologetics. If you've enjoyed this interview, make sure to share it with others. Please send your emails with uh, questions or feedback to podcast at apologetics315.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. We all have our own personal relationship with money, how we spend, save, and budget, our goals and dreams for the future. This is your money verse, and it's as unique as you are. And the Barclays app can help you master it. It helps you see how you're spending and any upcoming scheduled payments so you can make a clear plan for your money. Master your money verse and make money work for you. Barclays, you need to be 16 or over to use the app. T's and C's apply.